Yes, Lionheart Radio with you this Saturday morning. Daniel Mumby's coming in the studio. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. It's the movie hour. It is. Have you fully recovered from last weekend? Uh, yeah, just about. Yes, I was hobbling a little on uh, on Monday morning. Well, more than a little on Monday morning because <laughs> uh, I uh, hurt my knee going up the uh, John Reed Road, as one does. Mm -hmm. um, but a good time, and uh, we've raised lots of money for charity, so it was a, a very good weekend. Fantastic. And, uh, what was your time in the end? Uh, 1.45. Very good. Is yes. that an improvement? on last year? No, it's uh, two minutes slower than last time, which was three years ago. Brian, three years older. <laughs> yes. Something like and that. And three years wiser. <laughs> yes, something like that. Anyway, busy show today, so shall we, uh, shall we crack on? Yeah, because we've got a lot of yes. new releases to get First through. First of all, let's remind everybody, it is the Berwick Film Festival this weekend. It is indeed. Lots of good films, which we talked about last weekend. Shall we just give the website out now? Yeah, by all means. www.berwickfilmartsfest.com yeah. Or one word, www.berrickfilmartsfest.com. Yeah, and if you want to hear our uh, sneak preview last week, go to the Lionheart Radio website where you can download the podcast for The Magic Christian and it's on there just before we talk about the film. Great. Uh, some other local films are going on in the, uh, the coming week. Monday afternoon at 4.30 at the Annick Playhouse, we have got Zookeeper. Which is rubbish, so... <laughs> Right. Short and sweet. A <laughs> little bit better on Friday night at the Playhouse because it is going to be uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which we'll talk about we will more come in to a that, moment. Yes. And that's also going to be on Tuesday evening at the Maltings in Berwick. So, Playhouse box office number is 01665 510785. And I know it's not strictly film, but it sort of is. And that's on Tuesday evening. They've got a one-man Star Wars trilogy. Charles Ross single-handedly playing all the characters, singing the music, flying the ships, fighting the battles, and condensing the plots into one hour. Mm-hmm. Should be fun, shouldn't yes, it? Yes, if George Lucas had managed to condense the prequel trilogy into an hour, the world would be a lot better place. <laughs> yes. Yes, I don't think any of us will disagree on that one. Um, and one other to tell you about, which is tomorrow um, evening, 5.30 at the Maltings in Berwick. Yeah, you're better at pronouncing. Shall I do this? Yeah, you do Le it. Le Quattro Volte, which is an Italian film uh, about uh, a goating, a goat herding community in northwest Italy. It's not as you know, boring as it sounds. It's a very interesting modern silent film with uh, with existential themes. Although, if you get easily bored, it's not for you. Right. So, in the charts, at number 10, we've got 30 minutes or less. Which is officially underperformed. It's it's not without laughs, but it's nothing like as funny as it needs to be. Um, Mark Kermode made an interesting point when he reviewed it on the radio, which is that in terms of comedy, the more money you tend to spend on a comedy film, the less funny it tends to be. Yeah, I can and, understand that. Yeah, yes. I mean, you can take that to the extreme in the sense of, you know, obviously holy grail they only had a quarter of a million pounds and uh, yeah. they had to use coconuts because they didn't have horses so you, there are many examples where you, you can sort of point to that being true but like i say it's it's perfectly passable but it's nowhere like as funny as it could be right number nine one day which is disappointing i don't think anne hathaway's performance or her accent is terrible but the story is very contrived it gets so obsessed with the structure of the meeting on the one day that you start to question whether this could really happen and then after you get through the structure it's very ordinary Right. Number eight, and as we said, it's at Annick and Berwick this week, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Great film. Go watch it. My film of the year, although I haven't seen, I haven't seen the number one yet, and I'm sure you're going to uh, encourage me otherwise in a moment. Um, 
Number seven. I don't know how she... What's after the dot, dot, dot? Does it. Does it. <laughs> right. It's uh, the new surrogate Jessica Parker comedy, and it's not as bad as Sex and the City 1 or 2. It's just not any good at all. I mean, made all the more disappointing by the presence of Douglas McGrath, who is a very good director, because he made... Uh, he did one of the best adaptations of Emma, the Jane Austen novel. He made Infamous with Truman Capote. It's with them... Um, you know, about Truman Capote, starring Toby Jones, whom we'll talk about when we come to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Sarah Jessica Parker is just, I mean, her performance here makes you remember how good she was in Tim Burton's Ed Wood and how she's gone completely down the creepy route since then. The storyline's almost non-existent and the film's view of women's place in the home is questionable to say the least. Right. It's panned by the critics. Yeah. Fairly universally. Uh, number six, The Smurfs. Uh, you, you'll get to play the, the theme tune next week because it'll be in the bottom half of the top ten even more. So, I no, I still don't understand why it's hung around and I dread to think that we'll get a sequel now. <laughs> yes, indeed. Number five, also powered by the critics, The Changer. Yeah, I mean, this is the one that we, we sort of reviewed a month before it came out because the distributors changed their mind. It's utter rubbish. The Freaky Friday storyline has been done to death and, no, it's, it's very, very adolescent. Right. On to the top four. Some interesting ones here. Number four, Jane Eyre. Which does look really good. I mean, it's a much more restrained adaptation of the Charlotte Bronte novel than you might expect. It's got a very washed-out colour palette. The central performances by Mia Vashikovska and uh, Michael Fassbender are much more understated. You know, it's not in the sort of the ripe, um, sort of melodramatic end of... Uh, period drama. Um, it's elegant, but it's uh, no, it's engaging, and it does do put a very interesting stamp on a very well-worn story. Right, that sounds good. Mm. Number three, Friends with Benefits, which is all right, but totally disposable. The premise is essentially when Harry met Sally turned on its head because it's about can two people have a sexual relationship without being friends? And uh, no, Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis, pff, they're all right, but they're nothing more than all right. right. Number two, when we had Lewis in to talk about this last Saturday, thinking he was going to put the balance straight, and I'm not sure he did in well, the I end, did he? I think I was quite <laughs> fair in the end. I mean, yes. I was sort of, you know, wanting to pin down one or two of his yes. arguments, but I think he defended it quite well. I mean, um, it's clearly hit its target audience by taking bucket loads of money. I, I think, in spite of what Lewis said, there is part of me that still thinks it's very derivative. But I do think, like I said, that Lewis Arnold argued his corner well right up to the moment where he said the social network was boring and then it all fell apart. <laughs> I remember that one. Yes. yes. And number one, as we probably expected it would be, because we were raving about it last Saturday, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Yes, um, I went to see this with Paul Young of this parish the night before last, and short is that it's really, really great. Um, if I was being pithy, I was, you know, I've said Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, tense, terrific, stylish, slightly flawed. Um, the atmosphere which Thomas Alfredson creates is absolutely superb. You get the sense of a world which is sort of, you know, crumbling and fading and falling apart. Gary Oldman is terrific. No, all As the you'd expect exactly. To I think um, no. If awards attention comes their way, it'll be deserved. The only slight quibble I have from watching it is with the compression. I've since looked again at little bits and pieces of the TV series, and not to give too much away. Whereas in there's there are sections in the TV series in which more of the book is allowed to come in. For instance, when the mole's identity is revealed, there's about thirty or forty minutes uh, allocated to the reasons why he ended up working for Carla, which will become clear when you've seen the film. Whereas in the film we only get sort of five or six minutes of that. And I was in the oldest position of I wanted it to be half an hour longer. But I think yeah. the fact that I wanted it to be longer 
test is testament to the fact of just how engrossing it is because there are very few occasions when you sit there thinking, no, it, this is too short. Yeah. I think that the TV series is more verbally comprehensive insofar as, you no, know, all of Le Carre's language can come through and, you no, know, it doesn't, you no, know, it goes slower but it does, you no, know, manage to get all the little bits and pieces in. But I do think that the film is more visual as a piece of work, it's more atmospheric and it is very, very understated. It's not quite up there with Inception or A Single Man from last year, which I compared it to last week when I reviewed yeah. it. But I think it is the best thing I've seen this year, and I will go and see it again and report You're going to recommend it? Absolutely. Yes. yes. I mean, it is, ex like I say, I don't, if you haven't seen the TV series, you might not have a problem with the sort of the compression that I had. But, no, if you take it on its own terms, it's fantastic. Right. So, recommendations this week. Definitely Tink Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. Def yeah, Tinker Tailor, obviously, Jane Eyre, and uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Which, of course, is in Annick and Berwick. Did we say that? Yes, we did. And I shall try and go on along to the Annick screening if I don't catch it before then. Okay. Our cult classic this week is 1982's Britannia Hospital. We'll have a bit of Beach Boys first. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Beach Boys and I get around back to 1982 now, the third of the trilogy that we've been reviewing over the last few weeks, starting with If, which was just straight weird. Uh, <laughs> Lucky Jim, which uh, was... Lucky Jim. Those oh, Lucky Man. Oh, Lucky Man. That was Thank the you. one, yes, which was... Lucky Jim, something yes. completely different. It's also slightly weird and slightly confusing. Yes, and a little bit longer. And yes. now we come at last to Britannia Hospital. So, 1982, blackly comedic political drama, directed by Lindsay Anderson, the final part of his Mick Travis trilogy. See the back podcasts via lionheartradio.com if you want to look at our thoughts on If and No Lucky Man. This was nine years after the previous instalment, during which time both Anderson and his star, Malcolm McDowell, had struggled in various ways to stay in the limelight. I mean, McDowell managed it quite well because he did things like um, Aces High, which is a World War One drama about yeah. pilots, which if you've seen uh, the private plane episode of Blackadder Goes Forth, the uh, scenes where they're sort of flying in the air and they get shot down by the Germans, that's recycled footage from Aces High. Yeah. And then he did Time After Time, which we sort of talked about in other comedy in which he plays H.G. Yeah. Wells hunting Jack the Ripper in 70 San Francisco. And most infamously, of course, he did Caligula with uh, Helen Mirren Indeed, and uh, yes. Sir John Gilgood and so yes. forth. No, less said about which the better. I mean, there are things in it which are interesting, but yeah, it is essentially porn. Um... <laughs> Um, Lovely words. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, I'll say niche gentleman's literature from there on in. Um, <laughs> so, and McDowell was managing just about to stay in the limelight, but despite having continued success in the theatre because of his relationship with the Royal Court, by the end of the 70s, Anderson was perceived as something of a has-been. I mean, the two films that he made in between... Uh, oh, Lucky Man at Britannia Hospital. They were critically sort of mixed to positive, but they didn't get a very wide release because he made In Celebration, which is an adaptation of a stage play uh, starring Alan Bates, who was you know, still quite you know, was, was a very reliable screen presence. And then he did his own version of Look Back in Anger, which had been previously done by his um, British New Wave colleague Tony Richardson in the 60s. And the 60s version had Richard Burton, and the 80s version I think had McDowell in, but I can't exactly remember. No, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as good, basically. Um, I couldn't find out exactly how much Britannia Hospital cost to make, but suffice to say the budget was very low because Malcolm McDowell didn't take a fee, and it was a critical and commercial failure when first released, although, as will become clear, I think this is another one in which they got that stone dead wrong. So, and another one which is a who's who of British acting, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. I mean, we will 
you yeah. can sort of uh, come on to that yeah. a little bit later, but it, it, it's, uh, I mean, suffice to say there are, there are a few recognisable faces. So the story is, um, the plot follows a chaotic day in the life of the staff and patients at Britannia Hospital, which is a fictional hospital somewhere on the outskirts of London, and all manner of things are going wrong on this day. The various trade unions are going on strike, including the porters and the catering staff, because they don't want to cook the meals for the private patients who have sort of taken up residence. Indeed. There are protesters gathered outside the hospital to, uh, demonstrate against the uh, the hospital housing a cannibalistic dictator in exile who's living in his own private ward and to cap it all the queen mother known in the film as hrh is coming uh, on a royal visit to uh, open the new millar wing which is being uh, been created by dr millar played as in a lucky man by graham crowden and there are already hints that he's up to his old tricks again while all of that is going on, Mick Travis, played by Malcolm McDowell, is going into the hospital undercover as a muckraking journalist to gain information about Dr. Miller's works from Lucky Man, because if you remember in Lucky Man, he almost becomes a victim of oh, Miller's yes. experiments. Oh, yes, yeah, I remember that, yes. So there is a continuity yes. of sort of trying to get yeah. revenge while doing a job. And uh, he comes across something mysterious called the Genesis Project, but then it all goes horribly wrong and he gets inevitably dragged into all this. Yeah. So, if you took a cursory look at the career of Lindsay Anderson, you know, if you just read a summary of it, having not seen any of his films, you could call Britannia Hospital a case of how the mighty have fallen. Because, you know, in the 50s and 60s, when uh, the British New Wave was coming in with Look Back in Anger and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, you know, Anderson was being hailed as a visionary, someone who was yeah. helping to redefine cinema, and If wins the Palm Door at Cannes in 1969, which, you know, and the Cannes Film Festival arguably carried a lot more weight in the 60s and 70s than it does now, when it is, you know, essentially a, a massive marketplace with a couple yeah. of interesting films. And then you get to the 70s with Our Lucky Man, which is sort of mixed reception, doesn't get very widely seen the yeah. first time round, but it's still quite highly regarded. But by the time you get to Britannia Hospital, he is being branded obsolete because, you know, the punk, as punk wave is coming through, he's being seen as very sort of establishment because of his public school education. And, of course, the government of Margaret Thatcher means that the political... No ideology that he espouses is, is very much going out of fashion, and the reception to it was so bad that he actually only made one more film before his death in 1994. It was a little um, drama called The Wales of August, which featured Betty Davis's last yeah. performance. In hindsight, the reception accorded to Britannia Hospital is, to put it bluntly, a crying shame, partly because it's a return to form from a lucky man for reasons that will become clear, but also because it is one of the most underrated films of the early 80s, and for my money is up there with Pink Floyd the yeah. War, both as a political statement and as just a very strange concoction of horror and political drama. The initial point of interest in Britannia Hospital is in the role of Mick Travis. Um, in both If and Oh Lucky Man, he's very much the centerpiece. I mean, both films have ensemble casts, yeah. but there's always a sense that he's the central player. He's Particularly the one, in Oh Lucky Man, yes. Exactly, when yeah. it is sort of following his character, and he's the thing that holds all the story together, because yeah. otherwise it would just be completely rambling and all over the place. Whereas in this, he has a much more peripheral role. Like I see, he's the journalist who, you know, kind of turns up from time to time, sort of hiding on uh, hospital beds and sneaking in with window cleaners yeah. and reporting back to his technicians. So he's gone from sort of schoolboy revolutionary to coffee salesman to film star and has eventually ended up as a journalist um, who was technicians, one of whom is played by Mark Hamill, because it's interesting you mentioned Star yes. Wars at the start, yeah. um, are sort of very incompetent and spend a lot of their time getting stoned. And so you can sort of see on the one hand a shift in 
semi-autobiographical emphasis over the series from sort of Anderson's background in If to McDowell's in Oh Lucky Man and then finally The Nation as a whole because it's a reflection of Britain's fortunes of sort of bright zeal and performance in If with you know, the revolutionary yeah. zeal in this case which is the subversive thing about If through to the corruption of Oh Lucky Man and finally this sense as in Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy of just malaise of everything's going wrong everything's dying and, yeah. and we don't know what to do about it. The film's biggest improvement on Unlucky Man is the quality and integrity of its narrative. I mean, Unlucky Man, it was never short on ambition, let's put it that way. Yes. But it had so much to do and so many different stories to tell that it ended up spreading itself far too thin to be a knockout. I mean, the analogy... Um, very long. Yes, I mean, it knows. So we're talking 180-odd minutes, unless you watch it in Sweden, where for some reason it's slightly shorter. But, I mean, Unlucky Man is like you take... A pint of very thick stout, which has got a slightly bitter taste, and it's very, you know, you take a while to sort of digest it, and then you pour it onto a very, very, very thin saucer. So all the stuff's still yeah. there, but it's very difficult to actually digest it. You can't just, you have to sort yeah. of take little sips. Whereas Britannia Hospital is the full pint being necked in one. So you yeah. get this very bitter aftertaste, but it, you do get all the substance coming through. By confining itself to the events of the single day in a single location, it's more readily focused so that when it looks at the various different groups, you know, the hospital managers, the porters, the striking catering staff, the private patients, the public patients, it feels more readily like a microcosm and it, you know, very much gets much into the same territory that IF did so that you feel like you're, you know where you are in terms of the political drama, even yeah. when it starts tipping over into, well, in the case of IF, surrealist fantasy, and in the case of Britannia Hospital, full-blooded horror. Um, it is a very unusual mix of genres. On the most superficial level, it is, it's, uh, it's a classic British farce, albeit with a little bit more sophistication than the carry-on efforts from the same period. Or I suppose you could compare it to the work of Blake Edwards around the same time, because this was... This was around the time of the later Pink Panther films, yeah. which much were much more reliant on sort of knockabout slapstick, yeah. in which it was yeah. just getting from one joke to the next, and never mind about the plot. So you have that. On the other hand, it's you know, a political drama. You can sort of see hints of rising damp in it because of the presence of Leonard Rossiter and the fact that a lot of the protagonists involved are, if not wholly unlikable, then there is there are unlikable qualities yeah. to it. Because if you remember, the thing with rising damp is that all four of the characters have something inherently flawed and corrupted about them, and the, there is no hero in rising damp. Yeah, isn't true. It? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So you have the political drama in which you know the organised and politicised working classes embodied by the trade unions and the protesters outside the hospital are taking on both the middle class man managers, one of whom is played by Leonard Rossiter, and the upper-class establishment embodied by the private patients and HRH. <laughs> and on a further level still, it's a full-blooded horror film which very much draws on the traditions of Hammer and uh, what's known as Grand Guignol, which is like the French equivalent of Hammer in the 19th century, a sort of melodramatic, theatrical, from which we get most famously Sweeney Todd, um, yeah. and obviously leads us to the Tim Burton version. I mean, you have in the centre of all this political drama with Leonard Rossiter, Graham Crowden playing a mad scientist, which is very much in the tradition of Rotwang from Metropolis, you know, slightly insane. You've seen Metropolis, I take it, the Fritz yeah. Lang film. Yes. And that sequence of um, Rotwang coming out and sort of holding up his black-gloved hand, in the, which, of course, which gives the imagery to Dr. Strangelove. And in his performance reminded me, if nothing else, of Vincent Price's performance in Theatre of Blood, because it is slightly scenery-chewing, but the fact that it's slightly over the top makes him more intimidating yeah. rather than more ridiculous. Britannia Hospital is centrally... <coughs> excuse me a lament or requiem of modern Britain by comparing the state of the nation to a hospital which is constantly in crisis. Anderson is 
lambasting both the old guard, you know, sort of the, the post-war old guard, and yeah. all the governments that tried to put it right. I mean, he'd spent his entire film career trying to challenge people's perceptions of what narrative could do, of what visuals could do, of what you could, you know, how you could integrate politics into character drama, and he was becoming very disillusioned by by mainstream and by the you know, the growing video, you know, music video culture, which he thought was you know, narratively lacking yeah. and so forth. And whereas a lucky man, there were moments in it where it sort of skirted around the issue of champagne socialists and of, you know, um, the corruption of politicians and lawmakers. You remember the, the, the judge scene in A Lucky Man, which we talked about, yes, yeah. and just being completely out of left field. Britannia Hospital is a vitriolic attack on all sides from <laughs> all fronts, and it's just, it's about how the post-war dream of, you know, the health service, for instance, being free at the point of need and no yeah. one need ever go hungry and no one need ever be idle, has been eroded by self-interest and mismanagement management and misjudgment on the part of everyone. I mean, you think that because of Anderson being a lifelong lefty, and yeah. uh, you think, okay, well, the trade unions might come off a little more sympathetically, but no. Anderson yeah. shows absolutely no mercy in, in, in sort of pointing out the duplicity of the union movement in saying, you know, we claim to represent these people when in fact they're only in it for themselves. I mean, the opening sequence is a sort of absurdist vignette where you get a hospital drawing up to um, the gates, which has been guarded by the union, by the picket line, and uh, the ambulance drivers have to barter their way through, saying, you know, we've got a guy in here who's got hypothermia, and said, well, how long has he got to live? Well, I think he's going to cocoa quickly. Okay, you can let him in. Yeah. And uh, they get him onto the hospital floor, you know, on a sort of... Uh, uh, a trolley, uh, at which point the porters don't want to no handle him because he's clocked off and the nurses have clocked off for the evening, so he's effectively left to pop his clogs on there, and as Leonard Rossiter's name comes over, it's, no, it's, it's a statement effectively saying, look, this is the thing that health service was designed for, the one thing it can do right, and you've just destroyed it by yeah. selfishness, and you've only got yourselves to blame. The public and private um, in Britannia Hospital coexist very uneasily, which was, again, I suppose, a reflection of the NHS at the time, but also, you could argue now, because of the way that, you know, the, the rising in sort of cosmetic yeah, surgery... Yeah, I think more so at the time, though, when it was, it was a very bitter dispute in the late 70s and early 80s. I think it's sort of people accept it's part of the way it works now. It's, uh, yeah, I, I take the issue of cosmetic surgery, but I think it's more about why do you do it in the first place, rather than, you yeah. know, the... The very con you know, the huge concern in those days that it was going to be the under the unpicking of the national health service, which yes. it clearly wasn't. Yes, I I I take that point yeah. on board entirely. I mean, you you have the contrast between the plight of the ordinary patients who are sort of in you know, in yeah. the in the wards with you know, listening to Richard Griffiths on the radio because he's the hospital DJ in this, um, for whom the NHS is the bottom line matter of life or death. Contrasted with the attitudes of the VIP patients in the private ward who demand to be treated like royalty, including, like I say, a cannibalistic dictator. Um, when the catering staff go on strike, there is a sequence where Matron goes up to see the private patients and the only thing that she can offer them for breakfast is an orange. And suffice to say, she doesn't get a very good reaction. And the private patients sort of all congregate in the corridor to voice their concerns, saying, you know, I wanted kippers for breakfast, I wanted eggs over easy. And then you get sort of racial epithets coming into that, because you know, the general singer, I didn't serve 40 years in India to uh, hang around with a bunch of, and then insert a word that rhymes with dogs. Yeah. Which we won't say on the air. Um, so you have that sort of, that picture of Britain as something which is fundamentally fractured, as something which is being torn apart by violence, by injustice, by inequality, and of course by the threat of revolution. But although there are sort of, there are left-leaning politics in there, albeit you know, treated subversively and sarcastically up to a point, it's not a propaganda film by any means. I mean, it's not like Lindsay Anderson remaking Battleship Potemkin, uh, yeah. saying, you know, we should storm the barricades, we should take the NHS back, we should you know, get rid of all those toffs living in the, uh, the private ward and so forth. 
Anderson was very much, like I say, it's a lament, it's a requiem. He was bemoaning the fact that Britain was about to, was on the brink of turning its back, not merely on socialism, but upon the ideas that, and of the, uh, the welfare state and the achievements of it. And also, I suppose you can argue, turning its back on intelligence in favour of sort of the brute force and the tribal warfare of the left fighting the right, because of course this was around the time of the Falklands War, yeah. when it was sort of popular to portray everyone as us and them, rather than saying, we're a nation, we're all in this together, let's take care of each other. I mean, it's a little bit ahead of its time, really, wasn't it? Because, I mean, the 80s was quite a brutal decade. Yes. And, in a sense, the way, way you're describing it, it was a preview of what was to come, rather than something which had really crystallised, I guess, back in 82. Yes, it's, I mean... Uh, in terms of the miners' strike, certainly yeah. you could argue that it was prophetic. I mean, you know, people can sort of argue how how much of a threat the left posed in the 1980s, but yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Anderson's approach to that, where it's it's simultaneously righteous anger and you know, a sort of despair or just disillusionment, is summed up in the way that the riot scenes are shot, because the riot scenes are incredibly kinetic when the, you know, the crowds yeah. sort of storm over the gates and get into the Millar wing. But there is also a sort of heartbreaking poetry to them. There's a, a, an image which is sort of stuck in my mind where um, the riot police arrive to sort of contain the crowds after HRH has been smuggled in the back. And uh, one of the and they've put their sort of riot guards down and their batons ready. And one girl walks towards um, one of the riot policemen with a flower in her hand. And uh, the riot policeman sort of lowers his shield, looks at it, and then smashes her head in with his baton. And then you know yeah. you don't see sort of yeah. it's not graphic. He just you know gives her a little tap, but that sort of yeah. sets the crowd off and that leads into storm the hospital. But it's the idea of the protesters are not mindless idiots. They're actually trying to make an effort to sort of yeah. put things right. And you're just you just don't want to hear the establishment isn't interested in the public anymore. It also takes a very dim view of the media in all its forms. Um, there are two sets of film crews within the film, and both of them come in for a lot of stick. On the one hand, you've got Mick Travis's technicians, one of whom, like I say, is played by Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill, yeah. who are portrayed as inherently sensationalist and very lazy, and while Mick is crawling around the hospital risking his life to get all this footage of Dr. Miller's Institute, they sort of, they take various kinds of drugs and laugh themselves stupid watching documentaries about battery hens, and eventually they get up on the roof of their van saying, you know, let's make movies, let's do this, and eventually fall off the van and get sort of, yeah. you know, ravaged by the mob. Then, in the on the other hand, you've got uh, the BBC, who are filming a documentary about Gavin Miller for, I don't know, Panorama or no, Tomorrow's World, maybe. And they come over as complete sycophants who are actually fabricating events around Dr. Miller to make it, to make yeah. it seem like he's a godlike figure. There's a sequence where his secretary comes in to interrupt their filming, saying, you know, there's, there's something urgent going on. And the film crew say, let's put that in. Can you come out and then come in again and say exactly what you said? So it's the idea of, you know, yeah. we're taking reality and sort of turning it into fiction to make yeah. Miller, you know, inflate his own ego, basically. Despite Anderson's depression about this state of affairs, the film manages to tackle all these political issues about sort of class warfare and, um, you know, ideological divide and, uh, in certain amount, in certain ways, racial divide. It manages to tackle all those without slipping into self-pity because Anderson's like I say, his anger and his, you know, disgruntlement about the political situation and, and the way that Britain has sort of changed beyond his recognition is matched by a sense of sadness, a sense of you're letting this happen and you almost don't care. Yeah. Um, the humour in, in Britannia Hospital is very black and it is, it's, the best way of describing it is satirically vainglorious because there is, there is a sort of part of it that's trying to pay tribute to the country, but also it's, 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 it's taking the mick out of the, the, the uber-patriotic hubris. I mean, the, 
one of the key examples of that is the Alan Price soundtrack, which has got the recurring theme of Rule Britannia, but played very, very slowly, mm. as if to say, you are taking this far too seriously, will you kindly stop now? Um, there is a comparison with the work of Pink Floyd from around the same period, um, chiefly The Wall, both the album and the Alan Parker film, which we talked about yeah. many months ago now. Check the podcast for that. And also you can tie it into the final cut, which is the album that was made up of leftovers from The Wall and then released with a 20-minute short. I mean... Britannia Hospital itself has uh, a comparison with um, the Pink Floyd song, The Fletcher Memorial Home, which is about this um, you know, memorial home for, um, I think in the, the lyrics it says, you know, incurable tyrants and kings, colonial waste, is not all the, all the kind of the, the lions led by donkeys sort of thing. And, you know, in the sense that both institutions are bastions for a bygone age, which was based upon privilege and order, and all that age has been since rendered all but obsolete, and there's no... Aside from appealing to tradition, there's no reason to keep it going anymore. And running through all of these projects is a theme of regret, but also of missed chances, of we didn't go far enough the first time round, yeah. now we've blown it, we'll never get this chance again. Within all that, you have a, an attack on um, positivism, and the notion of scientific progress being you know, solely for the good of mankind, and you have the idea of in the case of Gavin Miller, of, um, Dr. Miller, scientific progress going beyond what humanity wants or actually yeah. what humanity needs. I mean, that's arguable. I mean, there is a core theme in, in a lot of modernist art, which I suppose you could call this a modernist film, of man feeling lost in a world which is constantly evolving around him and this sensation of, you know, I'm supposed to be the superior being, but I can't control any of this and I feel just insignificant. And in this case, we have Dr. Miller, who, you know, in A Lucky Man is the one who was, you know, experimenting genetically on people. There's a sequence in A Lucky Man where Malcolm McDowell finds someone who's got the head of a man but the body of a sheep writhing in a bed. Yes. Um, and so there are old tricks again, and he is the maverick in, you know, the public-private thing. He is the maverick-private pioneer who is being sponsored but crucially not controlled by the state. So yeah. there's a sort of, there's lots of arguments between him and Leonard Rossiter of, you know, you're not supposed to be here. And then he makes a comment of, you know, if all doctors behave like you, we'd still be treating people with trefinning and then he kind of storms off in a yeah. melodramatic pose in terms of its horror roots whereas a lucky man felt in places like the island of dr moreau um the horror elements of britannia hospital are essentially a retuning of frankenstein where you take the mary shelley story about humans wanting to live forever you leave in the sort of the warnings about the dangers of scientific progress and on top of that you put an allegory for social engineering i mean it begins with these very creepy images of Mick Travis sort of finding what appear to be fetuses in jars, and it's not clear whether they're props or just, yeah. you know, it, it's very, very creepy. Or you, or there's a sequence where he goes through a corridor into the operating room, which is full of uh, freezers, full of people's sort of arms and limbs, which have been amputated. It's very, it's very creepy. And, you no, know, that eventually culminates in a terrifying sequence where Travis has been discovered, and rather than just sort of, you know, punish him by sort of beating him up and sending him out. They actually kill him, take off his head, and transplant it onto the body of this strange Frankenstein monster which, Gavin, which Dr. Miller's been creating. And it's, there's a, a very sort of black comedic sequence in it where they you know, do this standard thing, you know, revive, you know, bring it to life with electricity, and it opens its mouth, and they, its mouth starts sort of fluttering as if McDowell's trying to say something. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Miller puts his hand into his mouth to sort of depress his tongue, at which point it bites his hand, <laughs> and he starts kind of screaming, and then the whole yeah. thing falls apart, you get the head sort severing from the body you know it's the gore in that sort of scene is it's worthy of anything in sweeney todd or even i suppose there's a through line with lucia fulci i mean it's not 
it does come out of nowhere and it's gruesome but i don't think it's entirely gratuitous because it does yeah. tie in with the political point of you no know, britain being like a frankenstein's monster sort of all little bits fit together yeah. and it's about to fall apart but by far and away the best bit of britannia hospital is its final scene which you get a cross-section of society after people have mounted the barricades and run into the Miller Institute and Miller's about to, to give this demonstration of what he calls the future of mankind and he gives this wonderful speech about the fact that you know, the human race is almost certainly going to annihilate itself if we don't move on and we need to reinvent ourselves because you know, our mineral resources are running out and if we carry on like this so many people are going to be living in poverty so what we need to do is we need to you know create this project called genesis at which point he revealed he you know this strange cover comes off the middle of the stage and he reveals this huge artificial brain which has got a face and it's sort of pulsating mm. you know like doug yeah. trumbull's effects in silent running or so forth and he, he talks about how no, this is this brain is a hundred thousand times more powerful than yours. It's a pure brain of pure scientific reason, no, not clouded by morality. In five years, this will be replaced by a microchip, and then within fifteen years, everything that humanity does will be able to be contained in a matchbox. Which again is very quite, prophetic. Exactly. Yes. I mean, this is eighty-two, and no yeah. people were still using reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders, so it, it would have been ridiculous at the time, but it was prophetic. And then in that to kind of conclude the pian the brain he kind of says no you have seen the face of the future now hear its voice and it starts reciting the what piece of work is a man speech from hamlet and then it keeps stopping on the phrase how like a god so reinforcing the idea of no yeah. man is master but on the other hand you're going to do so much damage with this and in the end it's all going to end badly and it's graham crowden at his absolute best of slightly over the top slightly histrionic but absolutely you know ingrained yeah. with meaning um, to sum up, there are a couple of little flaws with the film. Um, some of the broader, more farcical comedy doesn't work. I mean, there there are sequences like, you know, um, in, in sort of films where a load of people punch a guy up and then he kind of wriggles through their legs out so that they kind of, you know, discover that they're not punching him at all. Yeah. It does that in a very clunky way and it sort of it feels repetitive. And the sexual politics, as in a lucky man, are a little dated because there is a random sex scene between Malcolm McDowell and a black nurse, which, um, it's not, it's not gratuitous per se because you don't really see anything but it's when yeah. you know, mcdowell's getting undressed ready to go undercover and she kind of touches his buttocks and then it cuts well, so you think, yeah. yeah um why was that there fine no problem but okay so there are loads of little flaws with it but as both a plea for intelligence in a time of crisis and a very very savage social satire it does still hold up and it is it, a way to end the trilogy on a high it isn't quite up there with if but it's a twisted tale of compassion and caustic humour and it is a hidden gem of 80s British cinema. I think you enjoyed watching it. I really did. Yes. yes. So just a quick uh, list to some of the, the actors in it. Leonard Rossiter, of course, we talked about. Brian Pettifer. Yes. Uh, he went on to do Porridge, didn't he? I think he did, yes. yes. Fulton Mackay, who definitely went on to do I Porridge. I think he was in Porridge at the time, actually, because this would yes. have been... Yes, it would have been, yes. Yeah. Yes, and no, uh, you can easily recognise him because yes. he always plays the same role. Yeah. Graham Cowden we talked about, uh, Joan Playwright. Yes, Arthur Lowe turns up very briefly because no, yes. he has a big role in Unlucky Man, but in yes. this he gets ten seconds as a dying general who has a heart attack when yes. HRH visited. And Robin Asquith, who then went on to do, well, had done so many highbrow films. Yes. Not. Yes. Right, indeed. <laughs> we'll have a look at the uh, new releases after this. Thanks for tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. HED and Dick Van Dyke, thanks very much to Mick for texting in, asking if we're doing anything uh, nice tonight. Well, I'm off to the Northumberland Hall for the Annick Food Festival uh, concert, and you... I'll be going to see his band, Oil City Connection, which are playing uh, in Annick this evening. At half past eight. Yes. Go along to the gate.
There you are, Mick. There's your plug for this morning. Right. <laughs> How many pints does he owe me yes, now? Yes, right. <laughs> so next week's uh, cult classic, the tribute to Naff Jumpers. <laughs> Logan's Run from 1976 with Michael York and Jenny Agatha, and it should be fun. Great film, but they are awful jumpers. Yeah, that's not the worst thing about it, but yes, we've all become clear. I love it. It's one of my favourite films. Well, I should time. be very careful then. Yes, you will. I like you? it. I just yes. don't love it. Right. <laughs> right, on to the uh, new releases then. A bit of a mix. Uh, no, actually, not too bad a bag this week. Yeah. It's, it's, so let's start with Crazy Stupid Love. New ensemble comedy from uh, Glenn Ficara and John Racroix, who wrote the screenplay for uh, cult hit Bad Santa with Billy Bob Thornton about eight years ago. Most recently wrote and directed I Love You, Philip Morris with Jim Carrey and Ewan McGregor. Uh, story is that you have a guy called Cal Weaver, who's played by Steve Carell, whose wife, played by Julianne Moore, whom I think is fantastic, uh, he discovers that she is cheating on him and wants a divorce. Um, because he hasn't dated in, you no. Know, 20 or 30 years, he's completely hopeless as a romantic. He's taken in by Jacob Palmer in Ryan Gosling's first appearance of the week uh, to show him the moves and how to get a date. And in the, in the back of that, you have a sort of subplot involving Emma Stone falling in love with someone. So it's trying very hard to be love actually, which admittedly isn't aiming that high. I mean, Richard Curtis is a very good writer, but when he directs, it tends to sort of sprawl out all over yeah. the place and you get sort of a very contrived way of ending it. Because you remember at the end of Love Actually with the railway station or the, no, it's the airport with a uh, Love actually in which yes. they all have to get them together somehow and it's very yeah. sort of yeah but it's you know good fun so crazy stupid love it's totally flimsy and forgettable and some of the gags are labored there's not enough for either emma stone or julianne moore to do because they're both very good actresses but um no as disposable date movie stuff it's perfectly okay okay next one uh, Interesting division of opinion. The audience loves it, the critics not so sure. Uh, Soul Surfer. Uh, yes, um, new film by Sean McNamara, whose uh, pedigree isn't great. I mean, he made, you know, just lots of the Casper sequels, because you remember the 1995 version of Casper, which had um, Kurt Russell in. Yeah. And so he made the sequels to that, which I think went direct to video. Then he did a th one of the Three Ninjas sequels, and worst of all, three or four years ago, he did Bratz the movie. Which, not a great start. No, <laughs> yes. not at all. And that, you know, the worst performance of John Voight's career. Um, and that's saying a lot. So, it's a real-life story about a young Christian girl called Bethany Hamilton, who's played by Anna Sophia Robb, who is a natural-born surfer. One day, she gets attacked by a great white shark and loses her left arm. And uh, the film follows her as she attempts to get back into the water and surf in a competition ten weeks later. So, on one level, it is essentially a, you know, a, a very sort of generic, almost TV movie, Triumph of the Human Spirit stuff. And no, no, you've got Dennis Quaid and Helen Hunt playing her parents, and both of them are quite convincing, but it's that sort of, it's a very gentle piece of casting. And some people have complained that the film is preachy because the central character does talk about her relationship with God getting her through this, and I can understand why that might upset a lot of people. I don't think that the film is preachy, but I can understand why people would be yeah. offended. So it's unremarkable and rather bald in the way that it treats its subject matter, um, but the story deserved to be told and it is by far and away the best thing that Sean McNamara has made and the central performance by Anna Sophia Robb is pretty good. Okay, next one, um, which uh, critics seem to like a little bit more, is uh, Warrior. Yeah. Nolte. Yes, a uh, new film by uh, Gavin O'Connor, starring Tom Hardy, who's in Inception, and uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, although he's not in it enough for my liking, and uh, Joel Edgerton, who was most recently in uh, Animal Kingdom, which uh, also starred Guy Pearce. Um, the story is that Hardy plays an ex-Marine called uh, Tommy Conlon, who returns home after 14 years to train for Sparta, which has got nothing to do with 300. It's, <laughs> a, mi it's a mixed martial arts contest, aided by his father and Nick Nolte, whom I think is in the remake of Cape Fear, I'm I thinking differently? 
Because uh, he plays the, the the lawyer whom Robert De Niro's um, yeah, villain has done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, no, he's, he's got a bit more haggard since then. So while that's going on, he, um, Tom Hardy's brother, played by, uh, called Brendan, played by Joel Edgerton, who is an ex-fighter turned teacher, he returns to the ring to sort of win more money for the family so that he can train. And you know pretty much how it's going to end. You know that, no, that eventually <laughs> the tournament's going to end with the two of them getting into the ring together and having to kick seven bells out of each other. Um, it's been, there were, it's been on buses all this week and across Northumberland and the quote that's been on them is like, it's like all the Rocky movies rolled into one and if, no, the first two Rocky films are pretty good. Yeah. But then once you get to the third and fourth one where it's like we've got to find another reason to bring him back and it becomes increasingly, the opening section of the Rocky films becomes increasingly contrived of, okay, let's have Apollo Creed murdered or yeah. let's have him training his son or let's have him a street yeah. fight. No, and then you get into the same old story about, you no know, running up the steps and then getting into the <laughs> ring and so forth. Exactly. So you have to suspend a disbelief a long way to kind of get over all the convention and all of the yeah. silly bits of the story but there is some pleasure to be had from watching you know tom hardy who is you no know, still quite young just walking around with his shirt off you know and large some of it's covered in sweat or oil so there's a sort of homoerotic thing underneath it and you no know, from a trashy point of view there is some innate pleasure of watching two buff men smashing into each other repeatedly for sort of five or ten minutes at a time so it's unremarkable again but it is very good fun, and no, in terms of sort of boxing or fighting movie, I actually think it's more entertaining than The Fighter. Right. Robert De Niro's next. Yes, although he's not in it very much, unfortunately. In um, Killer Elite with Clive Owen and Jason Statham. Yeah, if we'd uh, talked about this sooner, you could have got that Bananarama track ready again. I could, yes. yes. Maybe next time. Um, so it's the debut film by Gary McKendry, based upon the novel The Feather Men, which is written by Serrano Fines funnily enough. Mm. Um, this has no relation to the Sam Peckinpah film with the same name with uh, James Caan and Robert Duvall from the mid-70s, I think. So the story is that uh, Jason Statham plays uh, an ex-special ops agent who turns up with his mentor, played by Bobby, and uh, they take on the head of a secret military society who is played by Clive Owen. Clive Owen, who seems to be doing the Robert Shaw look at the moment, because he's got that sort of the very dark prickly moustache that Robert yeah. Shaw had, particularly in um, the original version of The Taking of Pelham 123, in which yeah. he plays a terrorist, and he's very good in that. I mean, Robert Shaw is edgy in pretty much anything, but, you know, he's a great actor. And so Clive Owen is the head of this society which kills SAS operatives, and Jason Statham is a feather man who is hired. He's the guy whom the SAS hire to protect the SAS, so he's <laughs> hard as nails. Yeah. Um, it's being bigged up because of the cast. I mean, it's being billed as the fact that, you no, know, it's the first time that Jason Statham and Clive Owen have been on screen together because, you no, know, they've done their fair share of gruff B-movie acting, yeah. although the staff has done a lot more of that. Again, it's totally disposable, and like I say, I wanted more of Robert De Niro in it, and Jason Statham's film Blitz has just come out on DVD, which is more entertaining, and that's got a very good performance in it by Paddy Considine, who's in Dead Man's Shoes. So... It's not really worth seeing, and the period setting doesn't really do it any favours, so my advice would be to go and rent Blitz instead. Right. Our next one, loved by the critics, uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Which is a horror comedy, a debut film by Eli Craig, which won the Best Picture Award at the Sitches Film Festival. We talked about Sitches a little bit last yes. week, but that found film, footage film atrocious, which isn't quite as bad as the title would lead you to believe. Um, this claims to do for killer rednecks what Shaun of the Dead did for zombies. And the story is you've got Tucker and Dale, the two friends holidaying in America, and uh, they run into a group of students who mistake them for murderous rednecks because they've got South accents and they 
wear lots of Czech clothing and they live in the woods. And, uh, you know, so there, there are already sort of hints of deliverance or southern comfort yeah. to some extent. And as they try to explain that actually, no, we're not that. And no, it says that no, one of their party is separated when they go, sw- when they go skinny tipping. They think that she's been kidnapped by Tucker and Dale. They say, no, it hasn't. And then the body count starts to build up through sort of various gruesome accidental deaths. On the one hand, it is taking a single idea and playing it through, the idea that, that, that these rednecks are totally harmless and it's yeah. all to do with the misunderstanding on the part of the kids who've basically seen too many horror films, who've watched Deliverance, who've watched Southern Comfort and watched all those sorts of films, or even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you could say, is a sort of rednecky film. Um, there are references to things like um, the wood chipper sequence in Fargo where Steve Buscemi meets a sticky end. Uh, no pun intended, actually. <laughs> uh, and also, I suppose, to that Macaulay Culkin film, My Girl, because there is a sequence where one of the teenagers dies of being stung to death by bees. Yeah. So, it is one idea stretched over 90 minutes, and it does eventually run out of steam, but I did find myself simultaneously laughing and wincing at the trailer, <laughs> which means that it did its job as a horror comedy. It's only got a very brief cinema release. It's coming out on DVD on Monday morning, and I would recommend you go and rent it, because it does look pretty good. Right. And we end up with Film of the Week, which is going to be Drive. Yes, it is Film of the Week. A new film from Nicholas Winding Refn, who is the uh, son of acclaimed editor Anders Refn, who's worked with Lars von Trier. He previously made uh, the Pusher trilogy, which is being, the first of which I think is being remade at the moment, and that was about sort of gangsters in Copenhagen sort of going about their daily business and occasionally something violent would happen. Uh, he directed Bronson, which launched the career of Tom Hardy, you know, the, the sort of real-life drama about Michael Gordon-Peterson. Most recently he did uh, Valhalla Rising. Story is that Ryan Gosling, who um, no, is in Crazy Stupid Love this week, was previously in Blue Valentine. He plays an unnamed driver. By day, he's a stunt driver on film stretch who wants to get into sort of uh, a touring car racing. By night, he's a getaway driver for heists and bank robberies in which he says to the gangsters, I'll give you a five-minute window. Anything that happens in that five-minute window, you can call on me and I'll get you out yeah. of there. And he falls in love with his new neighbour, played by Kerry Mulligan. When her husband is released from jail, he's asked to do a job on his behalf and uh, sort of, you know, that he gets involved and something he doesn't want to and then it all kind of goes out of the no it goes out of control it's really good i mean refn won the best director prize at can which is odd because this is essentially i uh, know a, a quite well-worn b movie which just happens yeah. to have an a-list visuals and cast i mean it does owe a lot to kind of stuff like uh, vanishing point from the 70s or the collected works of charles bronson which is the idea of a protagonist who says very little but seems to be doing a lot just by sort of yeah. standing there so the performance is very solid there's a good supporting performance by ron perlman who was in chronos which we talked about all those Indeed, weeks ago yeah. it's violent in places like a lot of exploitation movies but it's a very entertaining piece of work and Nicholas Refn is turning out to be a very fine director. Yeah. And a uh, summary from David Edwards of the Daily Mirror. Hold on tight and prepare for the ride of your life. Yeah, it is being called the coolest film of the year. So, um, by all means, go and see it. That sounds fun indeed. Right, so, recommendations out of this sort. quite a few good ones. Yeah, see. I'd say the film of the week is Drive, followed by Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. Crazy Stupid Love is okay if you want someone to take a date to, but it is a bit flimsy. Right, okay, so, plenty to go and see. We'll be back next Saturday between 10 and 12, 10 and 11 for the movie hour. And it, as we said, it's Logan's Run, which I am going to enjoy talking about. Yes. Uh, probably more than you do. No, no, um, I lo- like I say, yes. I like it. I just yeah. don't think it's a masterpiece. Right. And then uh, October, Horror Month. Yes, we are going to do a whole, because we, we're going to have five shows in October. Yeah. After Logan's Run next week, we shall do a month of horror. So the one we will do uh, immediately after that will be Wakewood, which came out earlier this year, sort of uh, retelling yes. of The Wicker Man. Get everybody scared, ready for Halloween. Exactly. Right, so we're off to the food festival. Yes. Um, I'm finding Lewis Denny, and we're off doing interviews, and you're off 
helping and things. Yes, paid right. volunteer. Have a good day. And I say I'm back next Saturday between 8 and 11. Daniel will be here from 10 o'clock onwards. So uh, have a good day. Do get down to the food festival. Well worth coming to have a look at. Now it's the latest news from London with Barney. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.